Hello and welcome to There's No Business Like, a podcast where friends and industry colleagues explore topics and interview leaders in our industry of professional theatrical touring. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of There's No Business Like. I'm Brian Zelmer from KU Presents in Kutztown, Pennsylvania, and I'm here with my friends, Katie. Oh, hey, everyone. Katie Miller with the Midland Center for the Arts in Midland, Michigan. Josh. Hey, it's Josh Benson rocking it from Marion, Illinois. Kevin. Kevin Maynard, Quad City Arts, splitting the border between Iowa and Illinois. And Danielle. Hey, friends. It's Danielle Van Hook from the Alton in McLean, Virginia. So today's question I have for you guys is, have you ever been embarrassed at work or in a professional setting? Constantly. (laughs) Okay, so I don't think I've told this story on here before, but I was on stage um, and I was doing a curtain speech and... I was thanking our sponsors, and there are two major radio companies in Southern Illinois, and I say the wrong one. Oh. And the president of the company that is actually sponsoring us is four rows back looking right at me. Oh, that's rough. Um, And I say the wrong one, and I start to, like, backpedal and correct on stage, and I'm like, oh, no, 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 sorry, it's it's River Radio, Withers Radio, they don't help us, they do blah, 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 and and I keep going. And then you look and and you see him. Well, at intermission, somebody comes up to me, Oh no! and the sister-in-law of the owner of the company is in the audience, and she's like, I don't know what you have against that company, but that was so unprofessional. And I'm like, oh, oh I've had those oh, types no. of moments. That's horrible, Josh. But the president of the one that actually did sponsor us thought it was the funniest thing in the world <laughs> and loved it. Absolutely loved it top to bottom. But but that was probably, that's one of my top on stage like screw ups there. I have one is very like I, I did a curtain speech and before this curtain speech, someone on, on my team was like, you know, you really should try to like liven it up a little bit. Like maybe like, you know, like tell this joke. And I can't even remember what the joke was, but I got on stage and I go through my curtain speech and I, I drop this little joke. And when I say it fell flat, like <laughs> it was like uncomfortably silent in that room. <laughs> Uh, to the point where I was just like, I forgot everything else in the rest of my speech. I was like, and here's the show. <laughs> just like walked <laughs> off. I would say this is maybe more awkward than embarrassing, but we had Matthew Morrison here at the center. I think it was, has had to have been June of 2019. Um, and myself and one of my colleagues, we have kids about the same age and after the post-show reception had been chatting with us and he was like, oh, you know, it's so great that you have married couples working here at the center da, da, da. and he just assumed that we were married. So then I had to awkwardly be like, oh, no, like we're we're not <laughs> together. We're just friends and colleagues. And Matthew was I think he was like slightly embarrassed and my colleague and I were like very embarrassed because this is not the first time that this has happened to us because again, we go everywhere <laughs> together. We have kids similar age, but yeah, to have somebody like Matthew Morrison just assume that we were married and have like to chat with us about it. It was like a little awkward to have to correct a celebrity in that way. So it was, you know, it was funny in the end and we laughed about it or whatever. So yeah, I'm embarrassed and awkward pretty much all the time. So <laughs> it's just sort of par for the course, but I will say that while I, I do think it's pretty funny. Um, the number of times I have done math incorrectly on this podcast like, <laughs> is getting slightly embarrassing. Oh, no. <laughs> um, <laughs> but you know what? We just roll with it because no one's perfect. I was presenting an outdoor concert series at Sussex County Community College, and we had expected a record crowd at this one event. The president of the college uh, wanted to come out and say a few words since we had a, a record crowd. 
she was like kind of one of those people that I saw like very high upper class kind of persona and she starts walking towards me. I'm, I've got the microphone, I'm addressing the audience and I see her walking towards me with purpose through the crowd coming straight at me. And I don't know why this went in my head, but I did one of those kiss, double kiss cheek things mwah, mwah, to her when she came up and she like looked at me and I'm like, I'm sorry, I don't know why I did that. And I was so embarrassed and I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to be fired for sexually assaulting my college president in front of a thousand people. <laughs> so yeah, that was like really embarrassing and I could still feel the same embarrassment of that too. I don't know why I did that. I really don't. Oh my God, I feel it. <laughs> Anyway, I ask this question because Josh and I sat down with our comic colleague and longtime friend, Dina Blizzard. And um, among many things that she talks about with us is how she faced the idea of being embarrassed on stage. And I think it's a great story, along with several others that she tells in this. So please enjoy this interview with Dina Blizzard. I'm Dina Blizzard from One Funny Mother, and I am excited to be here with the fellas who I've known forever to talk about some of the things that we've learned along the way as a comedian touring around the country. Hey, Dina, it's great to have you with us. Thanks. I'm so excited. You're very special to both Josh and I because you're the one that connected us and kicked off our friendship. But I know you have a history before that even and since then. Can you just fill us in like what your professional journey, like the highlights of your professional journey? I know you've done so much, so we don't have time for all of it. But just what are some of the key moments along the way? So I started out as a, as a comic. Like if anybody asks me, what do I do? I'm a comic. By trade, I started, uh, I think I'm in my 21st year now. I noticed over the course of writing that I was writing about having kids and being married and uh, decided to turn that into a one-woman show that we eventually started uh, with Off-Broadway and then starting to tour. And we did that for a bit. Then the pandemic happened and uh, ended up writing a different show with two other girls I knew from the internet, toured that in 75 cities in the last year and a half. Now I'm back home and decided to write another show. You know that the show I wrote, which was One Funny Mother, the original show, was about being married and having kids. Since then, I got divorced and all my kids grew up, so it was time to write a new show. So uh, right now I'm touring a show called I Love You, Get Away From Me, uh, which is a little bit pandemic, a little bit divorce, a little bit starting over, a little bit loss. Um, and it actually is a multi-generational show. So my son opens the show. He is an upcoming comic. And then I do my time. And then my mom comes out, the third generation, and does her three or four minutes of killer headlines lining stand up and the crowd goes nuts. And uh, she's so excited. Every time she gets on stage, she'll say, you know, all the ladies in my church group, they always want to do stuff on the weekend. I tell them I can't. I got a gig. I'm 76 <laughs> and I got engaged. I never thought I'd say. I had the privilege of being able to see that new show recently, and it, it was such a hoot. It was so much fun. So, yeah, looking into going from comic to being to having an off-Broadway show, how did that journey progress? Can you talk about like how that developed from being a comic, learning that you wanted to figure out that you wanted to do a show called One Funny Mother, and then it being it becoming an off-Broadway show? Yeah, that was a very slow journey. I wish I could say I figured it out fairly quickly, but I didn't. The, the crazy story is that I was booked to do a gig up in New Hampshire. I was running late. I call. 
I tell them, listen, I'm running late. She goes, don't worry about it. We're running late. We're going to have dinner. We have an hour and a half set aside for you. And then you will be fine. And I hung up the phone and I was like, I said to my girlfriend, I was like, oh my gosh, I have no idea why she set aside an hour and a half for me. And she says, you have an hour and a half. I said, I have 45 minutes. I don't have an hour and a half. She goes, well, just write some more stories. I go, it took me eight years to write 45 minutes. I'm not going to come up with another 45 minutes in the next few minutes. And I was, I was so nervous. But by the time we got there, they were still running late. So my girlfriend and I sat at the bar and I got a napkin and she just started like, like, like yelling off the stories I've said. She goes, Tell the story about when the Dunkin' Donuts story. Tell the story about when Dean did this. So we started writing them on a napkin. I ended up going up, and I think I did three hours off of this napkin. And I remember thinking, gosh, if I could do three hours off of a napkin, what would it look like if I actually tried? So that was kind of my moment. Um, Did you just kind of work on it and work on it, or did you physically write it down at some point? No, I never write anything down. It's it's not really... I mean, I think I had all of the material, Brian. Like, it was all there. It just was never really formulated into a story with an arc Mm -hmm. in it. And Well, everyone has their own process. I was just curious what what yours was. Yeah. For me, I've never been one to write, which is ironic since I'm trying to write a book now. So I don't know, I guess I'll have to write words, but, uh, at the time, no, it wasn't my process. And so, um, so mother's day was coming up is 2008. And I decided, you know what, let me try to put this up. I worked with a local theater. We did a split of the door. I made absolutely no money, but it was packed and people liked it. And I was like, okay, I think I can do this. And so then I started playing every Elk Lodge, Moose Lodge, Knights of Columbus I could find, anybody that would book me just so I could get practice with it because it's a lot of video in it, a lot of multimedia, interviews with other moms. And so we did that for a while and then eventually decided to start bringing it to New York and other places and started going to APAP. But it was a journey. I mean, we didn't have a script for a long time. And so I remember going to, like, I don't don't come from theater, so I don't know theater words. So we (laughs) showed up one day and they were like, are we doing a full run through or a cue to cue? And I was like, (laughs) what's cue to cue? They're like, that's when we just go from one cue to the other. I was like, that's what we're doing. That's what it's called. And like, we had no script. So I was like, if Mm -hmm. I yell this curse word, lights out. They were like, this is a weird show. I'm like, it is, but it's really funny. Um, so it took us, we took, kind of took the long way around. Yeah, maybe a bit unconventional way to do it. But for me as a comic, I knew that the content was really good. And anything that I was lacking in terms of knowledge as a producer that I would figure out. And so I was really lucky to have gotten into a program off Broadway where they were mentoring uh, producers who wanted to be off Broadway. And we got into that program. And, and met an incredible team that kind of helped us through that journey. So how did you meet those people? Like, what were the connections? How did those connections come about? Yeah. So it was a big fat mistake is how it happened. <laughs> so I had gone to APAP. I started learning about some of the regional conferences. There was a regional conference either in, I think it was in Atlanta. And I had picked my, it was the first time I was going by myself and I had picked my booth out. I spent a lot of money. I got to the conference and I went to where my booth was supposed to be and it wasn't there. And I thought I made a mistake. And it turns out that they had drawn the the trade show floor wrong. And that 10 of us who were along this one wall were all going to be moved. And so I was so confused. I go, where are you moving us? And she said, well, you see that dark corner 
in the back where no one goes, that's where you're going. And so the 10 of us who probably never would have spoken very much at the actual conference had now banded together in the corner, mostly drinking and talking. <laughs> and uh, one of them had said, listen, I love hearing about your show. I work with this Off-Broadway Alliance and um, they're looking for people who might be interested in, in coming Off-Broadway. And so it really was networking and it really was, you know, just, you know, being the kind of artist who's willing to share information and, and surrounding yourself with other artists like that. So, um, you know, there's so many presenters that I can look at like you, Brian, who brought us in early and really believed in us and gave us a spot and gave us a chance to tape and make sizzle reels so we can sell it further. But there were just as many artists that were just so willing to sit down and say, Hey, I remember somebody saying, you're not charging enough at all. No one's going to think you're real. You need to bring your price up. And I was just like, I don't know. We don't. And they were like, no one's going to hire you. You're too cheap. And I was like, okay, like just silly things that you just kind of wouldn't know. Um, and so now, you know, anytime someone calls and says, Hey, I'm thinking about doing a show. I'm like, yeah, listen, here's where you start. And here's some great people. And, um, you know, and along our journey, we also started really, uh, getting much deeper into social media, which really played a much bigger role for us in terms of learning for us how to work with presenters, um, how to use, you know, I have almost a half a million followers on Facebook. Um, I have probably 200 million views worldwide on videos that we've made probably more. I really started out as a true comic, but then really got much more involved in the marketing side and realizing, you know, if I want people in the seats, it's not just up the, to the presenter to do that. And I need to be doing my part. And so that journey has been really interesting for us and the ways that we're able to help presenters when they're booking us, uh, which I think is kind of a new layer for artists to mm -hmm. be considering and being able to provide. So we have clips from the show, but we also have just kind of stand up clips that are real quick that, you know, do really well as ads on Facebook um, when we're coming to a certain area. So we, we take pride in that as well. Yeah, that variety of content for promotion and your willingness as an artist to be able to put it out there on your channels and to promote it yourself. There's recently more conversation within the industry about compensation for that, whether that's just an agreed upon term within the contract so that it is very clear what expectations are and that it's not an outside ask that is on top of your contractual obligation. Yeah, we actually, I'll tell you, we have it worked into our contracts that a certain amount of money is spent on Facebook ads um, that's taken off the top. So we, uh, you know, work with the venue to see, you know, what is their usual spend, you know, what we can provide for them. So we have an entire back end of our website where we have the videos that they can just grab and then put out and put, you know, their logos on. So we try to make it as easy as possible, but I definitely see that the venues and presenters that are putting money into Facebook ads that are targeted and using our content, those tickets absolutely move. It's been a real journey for us as well to be able to give good content that gives people an idea of what they're coming to see. I know that there are people that are our fans and that come, but I know that there are lots of presenters that are like, Hey, we think she's great. We also think you'd like her. So it's up to us to be able to give people a taste of what we do as best we can. So we try to do that. Do you have uh, vertical video content? Um, as well as standard video content? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Most of what we provide now is vertical. We actually have a girl that works with us that helps us with ads. So we subcontracted out as well. 
We do what we're really good at, which is the content. And then we have somebody on our staff that kind of helps get those placements done. So, um, so we do it vertically seems to be the best option at this point. That's where, you know, most people are kind of looking. Um, our biggest audience is on Facebook, but we still will run the ads on Insta as well. Now you've had, um, you mentioned your video content. You started that out pretty early and you had several videos go viral. Although has your son agreed that you you have any viral videos yet? Yeah, you know what? He has very high expectations, apparently 150 million, not enough to think that your mom knows anything. But uh, yeah, I started doing videos, making videos in 2010 with really no purpose. It wasn't that big at the time. You know, as, as a comic, I just like the idea of being able to now tell jokes through video. And instead of just reaching 200 people in a comedy club or 600 people in a theater, being able to reach millions with these short videos. So I taught myself how to edit. I taught myself how to shoot and I put some money into good audio and good lighting. Um, and we learned a lot. We made a lot of mistakes, but we learned a lot. Um, and we did, we went viral a number of times and have grown just a really great community. That's very engaged with us, which I think is another thing is that, you know, really kind of talking with artists and presenters that it's not just in your social about how many followers you have, but how many of them are engaging with your content. Uh, if you're just putting things up and no, you're not asking a question and you're not getting people to say, hey, you know what I would love? Hey, I would love to see this show, doing polls. Like those are the ways that you get people to be following you on a regular basis. And then making sure that you're posting you know, every day in some fashion. It's, I, I think that there's a big difference between a big audience and an engaged audience. We have audience people that fly across the country to come see a show. Uh, it's, it's amazing to me that people are doing this. They, they have groups, girl trips and come. I think that there's a lot of negativity when it comes to social media sometimes, but I think that for people that put the time into it, I think it's really about community building. And I think that we could use that as artists and presenters can use that as well in their own communities to, you know, reach out to new, to new customers. So you do have a community. I know you refer to them as the ladies. And not only are you just like putting content out there, but in your daily show, your morning show, for instance, One Funny Morning, you don't just stand there and, and entertain. You actually interact with your audience and your audience interacts with each other. They've gotten to know, like they're they're there every morning with you and they've gotten to know one another too. And I, you know, you go into the comments and you see them just like having come conversations with each other. And, you know, it's just, they're all together as a community, like you talked about. And, and I think that, that we're all, a lot of us are, are seeking that kind of connection. And, yeah. and uh, so that's one of the positive sides, all the negativity of social media that, yeah, there are those, those things, but I think you're definitely shining a light on, on what good can come from it too. I think that we really shifted our business a lot. Um, you know, I think a lot of what we used to do was kind of talking at people. And during the pandemic, there was nothing to talk about. It was just like, let's just talk to you. How horrible is it at your house? Because it's pretty horrible here, you know? Um, and coming out of the pandemic, all of those relationships that we had made, we actually started another business where we have One Funny Mother Tours, where we actually take people on trips. So we've gone to San Antonio, Philadelphia, New York, and we went down to Berkeley urban country. We'll get 60 to 80 people that'll come with us um, for these adult field trips. Uh, and again, it's just, you start to see the power of that community and, and just the amount of dedication that people have to your brand and to your shows and your merch and, you know, just kind of across 
lots of different things. So it's been good for us overall. Yeah. And you're not putting on a persona. You talked about when you used to do warm up acts for hours and hours that you really can't keep an act up for that long. Eventually your authenticity, your authentic self is going to shine through no matter what. Now, let me tell you what kind of hard hitting things we talk about. (laughs) Now, today we were supposed to have an etiquette expert on the show, but she missed the show, which was probably not proper (laughs) etiquette. Um, She was in the wrong time zone, so we missed her. So in the interim, I was like, okay, well, what are we going to talk about? So today's topic, very hard hitting. We talked about, do you, do you like your men to have no chest hair, a little chest hair or a lot of chest hair? And it was riveting fellas. And that's the kind of thing that we do. And we're dedicated to on our morning. Yeah, but show. You can't tell us that and not tell us what the answer was. <laughs> I was going to say, it was very revealing, but we had a whole conversation about that. And then about big muscles and whether or not the ladies like big muscles or like little muscles. And the answer was little muscles, which is good because my son has none. I was like, good news, tiny muscles are in. Um, but yeah, no, everybody was, in general, it was like a little bit of chest hair. But if like your chest hair is coming out the top of your shirt, bad, bad chest hair. So <laughs> we do so many weird things. Um, I think the one thing that I've really learned, whether it's about putting the show on or growing in social or wherever, whatever project we have, is that we have a lot of fun. We have a great team. I have probably about five people that work for me in different capacities. Most of them are stay-at-home mom and dads that started with me when their kids were little. They dropped their kids off, come here. One would do the finances, one would do the booking, one would do logistics. It takes some of the pressure off of me so I can just focus on content and do the thing I'm really good at. You mentioned being a warm-up act for a TV show. Mm -hmm. And what TV show was that? So I worked on a couple. Yeah, I started um, with the Nate Berkus show, which was a talk show. I did the Paula Dean show and I worked on Emerald Lagasse. I worked on Rachel Ray. I worked on The Chew. I worked on Anderson Cooper was my last show. I worked on Katie Couric. So you kind of bounce around to different shows. Um, but it was amazing because like, like Brian was saying, you know, you're with an audience for four to five hours. So, you know, even if you're a great comic, no one's got four or five hours. Um, so eventually you just have to learn to just really be in the moment and to talk to people. And, uh, it was the greatest training for just learning to be present as a performer and just kind of acknowledging things that are happening in the room. And I did it for about three years. And then I was like, okay, this is, it's time. It's time for me to go. Most warmups never leave. It's a great job for a comic uh, and it's a regular job. And I loved it. But I remember working on the shows and standing about, I don't know, seven feet from the people that were on stage and wondering, like, what's the difference? What's the difference between me standing here for three years and the people that are seven feet away. And the difference was, I'm like, those people did something. They wrote a book, they wrote a play, they, they did something to be talked about. I remember standing there thinking, so I'm, I'm so close. I'm only seven feet away. And I said, well, the only thing I've ever written is that play that's in my basement. Like I had written it and then it sat in a basement for a couple of years. And I just remember one day thinking like, I wonder what would happen if I took the play out. And I was 40 at the time. And I remember thinking, If I wait 10 more years, I'll be 50 doing a show about motherhood and I don't want that. So I decided to quit that job and I took that show out of a closet and dusted it off and called some presenters that I knew and said, you know, I'm going to try to do this again. And it took me probably five years to get back to the income that I had left. I just kind of knew in my gut, I was like, this was a great 
thing for me to learn, but I just kind of felt like I should be doing something different. And I, I feel like I get to that point a couple of times in my career where I'm like, I've learned everything I'm going to learn here and I need to move on to the next thing. And it sounds like it was a real pivotal point in your career for you, for you to have that realization of what the difference was and what you needed to work towards. Yeah, it was. And, and I feel like every time, maybe it's every 10 years it happens because I had a similar moment. Like I said, uh, you know, finishing the show during that I had during the pandemic and now I was divorced and my kids had all moved out and gone on to college. And here I was with a show about little kids and being married. It just didn't feel very right to me. And while I'm a playwright at, at the end of the day, I'm a comic with a voice and I just felt like it was time. And so we got a call from a venue that had worked worked with me for a number of years and knew my work. And they said, we want to book Dina for Mother's Day next year. And I said, well, I, I have to write something new. And they were like, okay. And I was like, well, I don't know. I don't know if it's going to be, I didn't write it yet. They're like, okay. And so for the first time ever, I booked a show and sold a show that I hadn't written. And it was so nerve wracking to me. And, and like I said, that first show took me years, seven years to write. And that whole journey that we just talked about, and I remember I finished my show in November and I started writing in December and by May we put up the brand new show. And I, I don't think I ever would have thought that I would be able to do that, but you know, 20 years later with knowledge, with experience. And it didn't even take writing on a napkin this time. I didn't write it on a napkin. Well, I might've, I might've written something, <laughs> you know, so very professional. Our, our mutual friend, Pat Hazel has, has his own podcast and he's interviewed a lot of people who are writers or comedians. And they talk about the importance of having that deadline yeah. that, that it's a very important tool and use, yeah. you know, useful thing to have. Yeah. You know, the comics that you see touring a lot, they're writing a new hour every year. And it just wasn't something I ever thought that I could do. So it was a really good exercise. And I'm really proud of the show that we've written. And I look forward to writing the next show now. There's no way I could have done that 20 years ago. I, I would not have had the same level of success. And so it's nice to be at a place where you have people that believe in you and you have presenters that are willing to put this out and say, we believe that whatever you write is going to be great and we're booking you. So to be in that position is amazing. Uh, but to also be at a place where I have three kids and two of my kids are now doing stand-up. And so it's a very kind of funny place to be where I do feel like I'm so blessed to be able to make, this is my career, whether I'm writing, whether I'm doing the morning show, whether I'm on the radio, traveling and hosting, whatever. Um, but at the same time, being able to watch my two kids at the very beginning, because they were babies when I started, they don't remember how hard this was, the punch in the stomach when everybody hates you and no one's laughing, you know, that I think it's a really important part of being an artist that you can't take away. No matter how much I love you, if you suck, you're going to suck. There's nothing mommy can do. And you've just mm -hmm. got to take it and you've got to take your hits and it'll make you a better performer in the long run. My kids have been with the, with me along the journey. So I know that they know it's a lot of hard work and I hope that one day, you know, they get to have this as a career and, and, and work with great guys like you guys and just be able to, you know, put their voices into the universe, I think is important. So you mentioned uh, your, your children need to learn from their own mistakes and stuff. I want to go back um, to when you were first starting comedy. I don't know if I have this timeline right, but I know that you started out as a pianist, then you were doing pageantry, you were Miss New Jersey and so on and so forth. And then somehow you discovered comedy. If that timeline is correct, I'm curious how, because in, in, 
being a musician like that, learning classical music, it's, it's about perfection and just constantly getting things, the technique right. And, and everything needs to be perfect. Whereas comedy, there's a lot of flexibility and adapting to the room. And the, how do you, how do you go from one of those types of mindsets in, in the arts to the other? I mean, those are totally different disciplines. It sounds like the, the middle ground of pageantry was really the, <laughs> the absurd <laughs> splash that, that was the transition there. Brought it all together. Actually, you're not wrong. I actually think I figured out I was funny at Miss America because those girls were trying to win. And I was just like, I can't believe they let me come. And so I was cracking up the whole time. And I, everybody's like, you're so funny. So I was probably 22, 23 at Miss America. And I thought about doing stand-up then. Uh, but I, I just, it was one thing to be funny by accident. It's another thing to be funny on purpose. So it would take a marriage, a couple of kids, and seven years later, I started doing stand-up at 30. Were there those those failed attempts and, and those early bumps along the road? Or did you no. just hit it out of the park right away? No, I never. No, I thought about it at 22, 23, and I, it was just too daunting. Actually, the story is because I, I always seem to have my moment, right? Like, so I had my son, Dean, he was two, we were at the mall. And again, I thought about doing standup, but the, I, it takes a lot to embarrass me. And, uh, and to me, the idea of being funny was just too overwhelming. So I just didn't do it. And one day I'm at the mall with my son and he has a full breakdown, like just on the ground, crying, screaming. And I'm, I'm, I'm like standing over him. I'm bribing him. I'm threatening him. I'm doing everything. I don't know what, and he's nothing is stopping it. And I have no idea what I'm supposed to do. So I run away and I go and I hid in the China department behind some dishes. And I remember hiding behind this China and thinking, oh my gosh, I can't believe that I'm hiding from my child in the China department. And I was thinking, I know they can see me on the camera. I know they can see me. And I was so embarrassed. And I remember thinking, this is the most embarrassed I've ever been in my whole life. And then I remember thinking, stand up can't be this hard. And then I was like, I should probably do that. And then wow. I kind of snapped back and I was like, oh, I have a kid. I should probably. So I was going to pop up from behind the dishes. But by that point, people had stopped and now he just looked lost. And people were like, where's your mom? And I couldn't be like, I'm over here. So I crawled through <laughs> to the linen department and I popped up and it came running around like I was looking for him. I was like, here you are. And so that's it. That, that is how I decided. I was like, I think I'm going to try stand up. And the funny thing is, is that when you start and you are not good when you start comedy and you will, you will suck and people will hate you and it's awful and it's a punch in the gut every time. No matter how many times that happened, and I would go to an open mic or a show and everybody would be like, this is the worst night of my life. I'm like, I have three children at home. This was a breeze compared to what I did today. I was like, nothing is worse than what I'm doing at home. So I'm fine coming here and you can punch me right in the face because it's still easier than what I do. So it was good perspective for me to have at the time because it was just so awful. But I, to your point about piano. So I was a, like a classically trained piano player. So like real strict. Um, but when I started doing stand up, like there is no, there's no strict to stand up because it's, you're just like, is this funny? Is this funny? Is this funny? Right. The, the, the part that once you get funny, the part that becomes the strict part is the brevity is using less words to get to your point. Um, and, and that took years that took eight to 10 years to try to learn how to craft that. Uh, and at the same time I started working in radio, I was working in talk radio. So I was doing four hours a day. Now in that scenario, you take one topic and you beat <laughs> it up. You have to stretch it out. And so it was just great to have all of these different 
disciplines where when it comes to words, what is it that, what's your goal here to get to the point in the fastest as possible to be saying the same thing over and over again and make it look like it's coming off the top of your head. And I think that that's the thing I love about all forms of communication um, is that they do have different rules and your ability, like you said, to walk into a room and know which, which skill set you should be pulling from is the thing that I love. I'm slightly obsessed with it now. And uh, we'll see. I don't know. And then there's the book. I don't know how that's going to go, but it's going to be dirty. So it should go well. <laughs> so how did you land on, on, I'm now going to write a book, having just written a new show and starting yeah. to tour that new show. Wasn't that enough? Uh, you would think so, Josh. Um, so, you know, it was not on my agenda. I had thought about writing a book years ago. Somebody had approached me about writing it, but I was like, what am I going to write about? Like, I just, there was nothing. I was like, I don't have anything to say. But I think uh, I never saw myself divorced. I think that that was a big part of it. Um, and it, it, it all happening at the same time. So I got divorced. We lost my dad. My kids moved out. I turned 50. I hit menopause. And then I got on dating apps. And none of that should happen to any person all at the same time. And it literally tore my life apart because I was no longer a wife. I was no longer a mom. I was no longer a daughter. Like it just, there were just, it literally just took me down to my core. And it, I just, I think as an artist, as a person, I think the things that I have written, whether in comedy or things that we've done online, the things that connect with people the most are sometimes the things that have come from the most awful pain. And I feel like when I have that happening, that the, the way that I express it is to just to put it to paper or put it in a form where I can find some kind of funny in it. And I remember my girlfriend saying, I know this is horrible, but if anybody can make divorce and death and loss funny, it's you. And so I'd thought about it. So I'm about a year, my one year anniversary of the divorce was October and about two to two and a half years from my separation. And I needed that time. Like I just started writing the book now and I needed that time. I don't think it would have been a funny book a year ago. Uh, so, uh, you know, with some time and some pain, it makes great comedy and I'm still trying to find the funny in it, but still also trying to just honor, you know, how hard that is. I feel like the thing that I have done well is just really kind of stopping for a minute, looking at where I am and just saying, what is the best direction for me to go in and what is going to be best for my own mental health and what will I enjoy and what is going to move me forward either as a performer or as a person. So Dina, we have a time machine and we usually bring somebody back to a point in their time to kind of either say something to themselves, uh, some advice or some encouragement, but I don't know where to bring you back to because we've bounced around a bit. Let's go back to, you made the decision to, to start doing One Funny Mother as a show. Mm -hmm. What advice would you go back and give yourself then launching it as a show as opposed to having just been doing stand-up comic work up to that point? I feel like the thing that helped me move along the most in the process was connecting with people that I feel like a lot of us artists, um, in many ways kind of work in a bubble. 
you know, that trying to connect with other artists, um, and all from different disciplines. Like, you know, we talked about Pat Hazel and we have our friends that are musicians and Irish step dancers and, you know, on paper, we don't have a lot in common, but I feel like, um, you know, everyone is kind of in their own corner of the world, you know, creating and you hope what you're creating is great. And we all work in theaters, but I feel like that that community of artists is so important to keep each other inspired, to keep each other encouraged, to help, um, you know, uh, uh, something that would have been a big problem for me. I'm like, listen, this is the easiest way to fix it. If you just go right to this route. Um, I think that the community has been the best part for me. And you know, being able to, you know, have the relationships, like I said, with fellas like yourself, where you are working with presenters who, if you do decide to throw out all your material and you're like, I'm going to start all over again. And they're like, I believe in you, let's do it. And, um, and being able to really cultivate artists as well. Um, because, you know, when Brian saw our show for the first time, it was raw, it was a raw show. Um, so to be able to put it up in a great venue and be able to get tape from it, and get the reaction from it and be able to get, you know, just feedback from Brian on it was just so valuable. So I think the best, the, the, the thing I would say was getting into like an APAP early uh, or getting into those regionals because otherwise I, I really spent a couple years just trying to figure things out on my own, which was fine, but I probably might've gotten to where I needed to be a little earlier if I had that community, but I really honestly didn't even know where to find them. So I would say that I would have done that sooner. You're, you're what in the industry uh, was originally an independent artist where you represented yourself in terms of bookings and things. Yeah. And now you have representation. How does somebody maybe who's up and coming and they've been doing the self-representation for a while think, you know, they, they're now at a point where they're like, I could really use that representation. What do they need to do? How do you, how do you present yourself to that side of the industry rather than, I'm sure it's different than trying to get your show booked with a presenter. Yeah. So the way it happened for me, um, I had been self-represented for a few years and I remember somebody saying like, it's going to take you five years to get a booking. Like you're not going to get a booking your first year at APAP. You're not going to get it the second year at APAP. Um, you might get it the third year, but, and, and it's such a daunting idea. Like how, how is somebody supposed to survive with no bookings and putting all this money out? Like it just, it just didn't make much sense. And so I went the first year and we got one booking and I was like, we're five years ahead of ourselves. <laughs> like I was so excited. The second year we went to APAP, we, we printed out the picture of the presenter. We put it in our booth and we had said, thank you with his name. And every time somebody came by, I'm like, that's did the he guy see who it? this last year. He loved it. <laughs> he did. He came by because everybody told him, like, you know, your picture's up in Dita's booth. And um, I said, ask him. He'll tell you. He was the only one that could speak for us. And he came by, he, we took a picture with them next to his picture in our booth. He was like our <laughs> only person. Um, but we really leaned into that, that, you know, it, I think it's one thing to be an artist and stand at your booth and try to convince somebody. But I think it's holds so much more weight when it's presenters talking to each other. And so we really appealed to him that first year 
to be somebody that could say like, yes, she's real. Yes. She's going to mm-hmm. come with a great show. Sure. She's a little kooky, but it's a good show and we enjoyed it. And she was professional and all of those things. Uh, and so the second year, I think we got three bookings the third year, maybe we got five, mm-hmm. but to us, we were already, you know, way ahead of ourselves in their five-year plan. And then I remember we, we had done a gig with Eric Omshide and I was at a regional uh, conference and I just happened to go viral with a video that same week. So the video went viral. I was at the conference and I was getting calls from like Ellen, like all of these, like, so I wasn't really on the floor very much. I had a girl working the booth, but I'm running. And apparently uh, Eric saw me and had an agent at his table. And uh, I went running by and uh, Eric (laughs) said, you see that girl right there? You should represent her uh, because she was awesome. Mm -hmm. And I had no idea. So I went home and uh, I was getting lots of phone calls from lots of people because this video had gone crazy. And I get a call from this agent and he was like, hey, I wanted to talk to you about representing you. I was like, oh, because you saw my video. And he was like, what are you talking about? I go, the video that's all over the place. And I'm talking crazy. He had no idea what I was talking about. He's like, I don't know what you're saying. I just was talking to Eric and he said you were great. And I was like, so you didn't see the video? And so Mm -hmm. it was a perfect timing because, you know, our cue was going up and, you know, we had like this very real recommendation from Eric. And so he was like, yeah, I think we can work together. And so we've been together ever since. And um, we have a good relationship and we book a lot. And so... It, um, it kind of happened that way, but I think my biggest advice would be is that I very much take responsibility for being able to sell my own show. And I put a lot of time and a lot of energy into making videos to support it and being able to work with presenters side by side to sell those shows. And I think that if you are that kind of person that the presenters know and the presenters talk and say, listen, you know what, this, this girl was, you know, kind of new, but we like her hustle and she's willing to do the work. And I think that, you know, I, I remember just as a comic, there was a time where I really felt stuck. And I remember saying to somebody, I need an agent. I need a manager. Like if I had this, all these things would be happening for me. And I was going on and on. And the comic had been around for like 30 years. I was probably fairly new. And he just looked at me. He goes, what if you just focused on being funny? Mm. And I was like, what do you mean? He was like, what if instead of chasing people, you just got really funny? And I was like, what would be the point of that? He was like, because (laughs) if you're really funny, people are going to find you because they can Mm. make money off of you. Because if you have a good show, everyone makes money. So instead of spending your time trying to get some perfect scenario for yourself, just work on your craft and people will find you. And it was the best advice. And I needed to hear it at the time because I was so focused on trying to make something happening. And the reality is, is when I really just focused on my craft and the product that I was putting out, people started to notice and people started to talk. And so I do, I really credit Eric for, you know, making that connection for me and really changing my business. And I credit, you know, the guy that booked us the first year to, to just be a great, you know, marketer and mouthpiece for us about, you know, we're new, but we're worth taking a chance on. And, and I think that, I think that that idea of cultivating talent is really important because there's a lot of great talent out there that 
just doesn't have the production skills, but are really good talent. You know, I think there's risks that have to be taken across a couple of different groups of people. Dina, is there any advice or something that maybe took you a while to learn that might be helpful to expedite someone else's knowledge? This was an important story as to when I decided to start investing in myself. So I was a comic and I was a headlining comic and a friend of mine booked me on a show. And uh, comedians historically, you know, doing stand-up clubs, we don't make much money. Maybe it was $300. And uh, it was him and another guy from the radio and myself. So I was really the only comedian on the show. It's a thousand seat theater, it's sold out. And I remember standing on the stage and in my head, calculating how much the take was for this door as I was on stage doing my show and thinking $300 seems like a very small percent mm-hmm. of the show. And uh, after the show, he came over and he counted out the money and he's putting it in my hand. He goes, now $300. That's really good for you. Mm. And we can do more of these. We can do a lot more shows like this. And as he's saying it, I'm looking at the theater behind him, all the thousand empty seats that all were paid $30 for and the 300 he's putting in my hand and telling me how good this was. And I remember thinking, this number isn't right. I just did everything. Mm -hmm. And the only difference is, is I don't know how to produce. So I need to learn. Now, mind you, I would go on to start producing and understanding what four walling is and understanding the risks of that and understand partnering with theaters and understanding that, yeah, there's a huge potential for loss and I've got to pay the marketing. Like I didn't know all that. And I definitely had times where I took hits, but I got to the point where I thought to myself, if I don't learn to produce myself, if I don't learn the business of this business, then I will always be in a position of being a person that's just getting paid instead of learning to take risks on myself. And so what I tell my kids now, right now, my message is learn your craft, be funny, but they have been around me long enough to know that this is a business. This is show business. And I spend a ton more time now at this table working contracts. Um, then, you know, where, when I was younger, it was all stage time and now it's all business. I know my craft. I know how to do it. But I think that really educating yourself just as much in the business of this business and how to produce and how to work with people is just as important as the craft itself. And so I would say, ask around, you know, when you're meeting other artists, ask, you know, how do you work your business? I know a lot of people are using like a, a virtual assistants now, like how do I get some of the heaviness of the actual business off of my plate so I can really just work on making some good deals, making some good content and moving forward. I think that there's a lot to the business that you have to learn. And there's not a school for this. There's not a school for learning how to manage yourself as an artist. I so, hear there's a great podcast for it though. <laughs> I hear there's an amazing podcast that you can listen to. So what's your, what's your favorite thing about the industry right now? Your ability to be successful as an artist is completely in your hands. I feel like years ago, there was a time where there were a lot of gatekeepers. You had to have an agent, you had to have a manager, you had to have representation. And with the, uh, the resurgence of social media and how you have the ability to find your audience without ever stepping into a theater first and being able to 
to get somebody to start following you, get somebody to love what you do, and then be able to say, now come to find me at this theater is super valuable. And, and it used to be, you know, as a comic, if you wanted to make it, you had to go on the road, you had to live in your car, you had to get an email list, you had to do all of these things, which is not an option when you have three little babies. And so for me, being able to learn social media and find an audience. So by the time I get to presenters, I can say, I have an audience they want to meet when can we book a date? To me, that gave me power that I never had before. And you're seeing more and more of it. And so for any artists out there that just says, listen, I I've been pitching presenters and nobody will take a chance with me, then figure yourself out in social and you make it so they can't ignore the numbers that you have. Because the reality is, is those numbers can turn into sold seats. And, and that's what we all want in the end. So I to me, I mean, even years ago when I was still going to APAP, I was always talking about the importance of social media, that artists have to figure out who they are in social because it's your job to also sell these seats. Um, and I think it's hard. I think some forms, uh, some disciplines are easier to translate into social than others, but all of us have to be on that journey. Um, that's, that's my bit of advice is that it's, it's a little bit of a struggle to figure it out, but I feel like there's a lot of power as an artist for you to decide what direction you want your career to go in. If you can figure it out for yourself. Thanks, Dina. It's been great talking with you as always. Thanks, Brian. Thank you, Dina. See ya. Brian and Josh, thank you so much for having Dina on. I just loved this conversation. There were so many wonderful moments and so many great stories. I mean, and quite frankly, the first time I listened through it, the story about um, the mall and the China and China section <laughs> and just <laughs> popping up from the linen section. So that just really made my day listening to it. And um, Dina's humor, but also her humility really comes through, uh, throughout the course of the interview. And I just was really grateful that we got a chance to listen to this. Yeah. And I just love the idea that, that, that statement of like, what would it look like if I actually tried? Uh, because I, <laughs> I've thought about that, like a lot of times in certain things that, that, that I do of just like, what if I actually focused on this and, and, you know, made a go of this, like how, how different that could be. To bounce off of that, Kevin, when she said, was talking about when she was a, a warm up comedian, right. And she was asking herself, like, what have they done seven feet away from me that has put them in that position versus where I am. And that her whole thought process there and the step she took forward was really resonant. And I thought it was such a great moment to share with other artists in particular, but administrators as well that are thinking about what's next. What can I do differently? How do I propel myself forward um, and follow my dreams as well? So I really appreciated that so much from Dina. It was, it was a really great moment during the conversation. Yeah, Katie, the other theme that I heard in there was that there's a steady job with income and I don't know, maybe benefits. She didn't necessarily say that, that you can get being a comic, which is something that's generally considered to be like not steady. You know, whenever we talk about the advice, like people get a lot when they go to college or when they really are given a go at something of like, you want to be a comic? Like there's no money in that. Like the different ways that we can shine a light to all of the other things you can do with that skill. Like she went to radio, um, you know, she's hosting things like there's so many transferable skills that we develop in all of these different roles. And I didn't know that a warm up um, comic for a TV show is with the audience for four to five hours. I mean, 
doing that every day, yeah, you're going to develop some real skills. We didn't even get into some of the things that she she's done. I mean, we kind of touched on that she was Miss New Jersey and participated in the Miss America pageant, but she also has her own uh, merchandise line and clothing. Um, she also has uh, her own board game that she developed called Chardonnay Go. Is it fun? Oh, it's so fun. Have you played it? Josh and I got to be part of the testing group uh, that that tried it out, but and it's a lot of fun. <laughs> Can you tell us about that, please? Maybe some other time, Kevin. Oh, <laughs> she even has her own day. In Chardonnay, France, they honored her in Chardonnay, France, brought her whole family over and, you know, made a day for her. When she mentioned the radio thing, I was like, oh, wow, how many lives can you possibly live in one life? Like how many iterations of herself and how many versions of Dina have there been? And I just found that to be so thought provoking. And I think, I mean, particularly for us as women, I think we get really pigeonholed into one thing. You can only be one thing or maybe two things. And, um, to hear her speak so candidly about all of those different roles that she's taking on the time and energy and and really intentional thought she puts into her business and she puts into her kids and all these different aspects of her life was really meaningful per personally to me. And I want to talk to Dina about. <laughs> yeah, she did talk about, too, when she had when her kids were younger, how she couldn't just be a comic on the road and make the living like that and how it being a little easier for women in any comics today because with social media they have this outlet to still grow and and reach audiences much larger audiences than even if they were on the road yeah and on the topic of being a mom the thing that i felt so deeply was when she said that like yeah bombing on stage is super hard and it's a punch to the gut but it's not harder than being home with your kids. And I remember like <laughs> in the early days of having twins and just like being like this, like sitting in that like feeling of like, this is hard. And also it seems like it goes on forever. Like this is never going to stop. I was like, I just remember being like, okay, so now I know if somebody tells me they're a twin mom, that like, I do not mess with that person. <laughs> like that person has been through it. Mm -hmm. And like, when she said that, I was like, yeah, that really sums up a lot of the things that I felt. Um, and she has three kids and that sounds like a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> I think another thing that this that this interview highlighted was, you know, that idea of like, you never know what relationships are going to lead where. I mean, she talks about a, a, a rough situation at a, a conference, or, you know, sort of a rough start there. Um, but the relationship that she built with those other individuals who were in that similar position um, led to something big. Yeah, it was in Atlanta. I was at that conference. And it was really like, it was a really shitty situation for those people. Like nobody came to their booths. And that that really touches on the point that Everything in this business is really about the relationships and the connections and the networking that we all have. And and any opportunity while you're in a professional situation, while you're at a conference to, you know, you you get into a bad situation with some other people, but taking advantage of that time and talking to each other and getting to know each other. Yeah, sort of making the the, the best of, of a bad situation. Um, but I mean, it's sort of why we started doing this. I mean, because we realized that relationship building and networking is what led us to where we are in this industry. And this podcast is a is an easy introduction for people to to meet someone. I mean, now like using Dina as an example, somebody could listen to this interview and have a jumping off point for a conversation with her instead of just, you know, walking up being like, you know, 
you know, doing that introduction and be like, oh, I love your stuff. Like, but now they've got this great anecdote about, you know, her hiding from people in a grocery store, um, you know, and just some like fun ways to to start that conversation and sort of be memorable. Okay. And so the last thing that I wanted to say about how much I loved listening to Dina's interview was the silly but like also very smart way that she leveraged that one yes, presenter that booked yes. her from the APAP before in a way, like honoring that person and say, thank you for doing this for me. You know, like this is giving me like this confidence and I got to come and perform in a venue, but then it was also like nobody else has a picture of a presenter in their booth. Right. So it's like a talking point and it's, I mean, it's, it's a viral thing, right? It's like what you want to do to stand out in a hall like that without being corny or cheesy or being in somebody's face, right? It's like a genuine way to start building those connections and hearing how that sort of led to her meeting new people and, you know, maybe getting some new bookings all the way to that awesome connection that um, Eric Olmscheid made for her. It just like, it reminded me of the responsibility that we have as presenters to talk to each other about artists and about the great work that they've done in our venue because like we want artists to succeed. We want artists to be in our venue and to go to each of your venues and to be able to keep going for the artists that we really love and we really want to support. And so like we have to remember that whenever we're talking with colleagues is that that little bit of sharing, that little bit of time is a huge impact on somebody's career. So it is like really important to think about where you spend your time and like the quality of how you spend your time. I love that, Danielle. Going back to what Josh said about how important relationships are, and we keep going over that because it keeps coming up in, in every conversation. And as I mentioned in the beginning of the interview, that Dean is the one that fostered the relationship between Josh and I becoming friends. And I am very grateful for that, but I I'm so thankful to know Dina, uh, you know, all these years and how amazing she is and inspiring. She's very entrepreneurial, which I know Kevin wanted to say, um, <laughs> I'm always amazed at the new things that she comes up with all the time. And I'm so glad to be able to call her friend and I miss hanging out with her at APEC now that she has representation. So, but I, I always look forward to seeing her when I get a chance to, and, and I hope you got something out of this too. And we'll see you next time on there's no business like. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to There's No Business Like. Our producers and hosts are Brian Zelmer, Josh Benson, Kevin Maynard, Katie Miller, and me, Danielle Vanho. Views expressed in this podcast are ours alone and are not reflective of the organizations we are a part of. Keep up with us at nobusinesslike.com. There you'll find links to all of our episodes and socials. If you like this podcast, give us a like, a follow, a review, or our favorite, a five-star rating. Oh, wait, what was that site? <laughs> I got it. Don't worry. It is nobusinesslike.com. Do I sound out bus ness every time I type it? Yep, sure do. Stay in touch, my friends. I do have I do have one more question because I just learned about jersey hoops and I our listeners can't see but you're wearing hoops are would those be considered jersey hoops <laughs> These are official jersey hoops we sell them on our website and there's different there's different sizes this is for, like you couldn't just put these on Brian you'd have to start in a baby hoop and then you'd move into a date night hoop and then you'd work, you'd move into like a nice hoop and then full jersey. But like you can't just roll right into this. These are these are like, like training wheels. You got to work up to a big jersey. If we didn't have our names on the screen, would you be able to tell us apart? 
Because you do look so much alike. <laughs> because you always said to me that Josh was my doppelganger. And um, oh, before yeah, I yeah. met him. Yeah, I and so I, I just get a That's kick true. out of that because we're nothing alike. <laughs> I just love that I was able to bring your love together in this way. <laughs> Years we are later, too. here we are. Yeah. I mean, it, it was pretty fast, too, because, I mean, within the first couple of days, I was giving him a dance. So. <laughs> exactly. That everybody on 6th Avenue. <laughs> we had walk-ins from that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we had a lot of fun that night. That was such a funny night. Mm -hmm. Such a, a funny collection of people. Do you remember? Were you guys rowing the boat? I just remember yeah, somebody yeah. rowing yes. the boat. And that was before the game was really out. That was probably just a prototype. That was, of the it was a prototype. It was the prototype. Yeah. It was the like, yeah, the little like carved up uh, barrels. Yeah, and, yeah. It was great. Man, I drag everybody into all my stuff. I was like, guys, we're gonna play a game. Show up at six o'clock. I still remember walking to it and going, "Wait a minute, I'm walking to a board game night in a lobby of a hotel in New York." All right, and I'm about to get a dance. Boom. <laughs> yep. It was the best he's mm -hmm. ever had. 